Hello and welcome. I'm Naledi Makene and I'm the events coordinator at Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at zocalopublicsquare.org and all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like it, follow us or subscribe. We're about to hear from Atlantic senior editor, Ronald Brownstein, who joins us today to discuss his new book, Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. And I'm thrilled to introduce Sandy Banks, who will interview Ronald today. She is a columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where she has been employed in different capacities for over three decades. year. I can remember all of these things happening, but I just had no idea. Um, I remember that was the year that uh, President Richard Nixon resigned, the first time a president had resigned in our country. It was the year that Jerry Brown was elected governor, um, and he was so kind of far left that he was called Governor Moonbeam, and, at, and, he, and he had succeeded a president that was so far right, I mean, a, a governor, that was so far right, Ronald Reagan, that he campaigned, um, one of his big campaign uh, issues was to get rid of the fair housing law. So we went from Ronald Reagan to Jerry Brown in 1974. Um, Patty Hearst was uh, kidnapped in 1974 mm -hmm. by the SLA and, and that led to a huge, it was the biggest firefight between police and radicals ever in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the cultural side, we had All in the Family, as the most popular um, television show. And we also had um, 
good times and Chico and the man and all of a sudden people that we had never seen on television and stories we'd never told. Um, we had a, a, a Carol O'Connor, Archie Bunker was the, the bigot that we uh, loved to hate. And, um, and then we also had a movie that kind of pulled the covers off Los Angeles as kind of this, you know, wonderful place with all about love, um, Chinatown, mm. which almost won the Academy Award that year. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and music took uh, a huge shift from kind of the radical um, protest songs of the 60s. And we had a whole big wave of creative people coming to Los Angeles that, that transformed the music industry in ways that I think we're still um, coming to grips with and we're still benefiting from. So I want to know, how did you settle on 1974? Yeah. And has this always just been percolating in your head? Yeah. Or how did you do this? Right. Well, th thank you. Well, th first of all, thank you for doing this um, as a former colleague. Um, so, um, you know, I, I grew up in New York, but as an adult, I've kind of spent my adult life bouncing between Washington, mostly, and then L.A. I, I lived in Washington when I first got out of college, lived in L.A. in the late 80s and early 90s, went back to Washington and then came back here. When I lived here in the late 80s and early 90s, I wrote a book called The Power and the Glitter, which was a history of the relationship between Hollywood and politics going all the way back to the 1920s. And like anybody else who you know, spends any time in Hollywood history, uh, you become very quickly aware that the period of the late 60s to the mid 70s is considered the second golden age in Hollywood history, along with the period around World War II, basically from like the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind till um, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but the period of the late 60s and early 70s from basically Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy through the early 70s was considered a real creative upswing in, in Hollywood. So when I moved back to California in 2014, after 20 years in Washington, uh, most of them for the LA Times covering uh, you know, national politics in the White House, uh, when I moved back here, I kind of had in my mental box back pocket and awareness of the early 70s was this great period in Hollywood history. And then when I got out here, uh, I started listening more to the music that was being produced in California in those years, uh, the Eagles and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and, and Joni Mitchell and others. And I remember being struck that, well, hey, this is kind of happening at the same time as the movie thing. But the final Tumblr kind of clicked into place for me about maybe... Uh, probably about a year and a half after I was back here, uh, you know, and I'm I, as a, you know, mostly a political reporter, although I like to try to write about the way culture and politics intersect. I went to an event, a political event for Elizabeth Warren at Norman Lear's house. And I distinctly remember on the way out of that going home thinking, wow, he was doing all in the family and, you know, uh, uh, mod and good times at the same time as the movies and the and the music was happening. And that was when I seriously began to think, well, hey, there, there, there's something here that all of this was going on at the same time. And it would be interesting to try to think about why and how. Um, and of course, as you know, Jerry Brown is getting elected uh, in, this, in this period. So that was when I began to seriously think about um, uh, what was happening in LA in the early 1970s. And uh, I literally, I have like in, in my, in my you know, uh, cabinet here, uh, legal sheets where I kind of listed the movies, music and television in each year of the early 70s. Because obviously this was not a one year process. And as we'll talk about, it was, it was a wave that was building. But I ultimately decided that 1974 
was the year to focus on for two reasons. But one, because it, as we'll, as I'll, as I'll, as we'll discuss, it had the most, I think, of the emblematic art in movies, music, television that uh, exemplified the way the culture was changing in the early 70s. For example, it was the only year that All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore and MASH were all on TV together. And in the year of 1974, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, The Eagles and uh, Joni Mitchell all put out career defining albums. So in that sense, it was it was kind of, I think, the culmination of what was happening in the early 70s. But the other thing that was really important is it's the last year before the tide starts to recede. And, and, and in 1975 and 1976, in a lot of different ways, you see the culture going in different directions and this moment of concentrated influence and excellence in LA begins to dissipate. How would you describe that tide that was receding? What, what, what was that tide carrying out or bringing back in? Yeah, so, you know, my, I, I believe that, the, the, that essentially, you know, the story that I tell is uh, the simultaneous, simultaneous kind of revitalization uh, of the movies, television, and music business uh, in LA, in the, and all of it happening in LA in the early 1970s. And all of these industries were being, uh, being moved by the same tide. They, they, were, they were being carried along by the same tide, which was the growing economic clout of the baby boom. And that forced, in particular, movies and television, which had steadfastly ignored all the changes that were happening around them in the 60s. I mean, you know, we didn't get any closer to Vietnam in the 1960s on television than Gomer Pyle and McHale's Navy and Hogan's Heroes. That was about as close as we got. We, and we had the Clampets, we had, we had the Beverly Hillbillies, and we had Green Acres and Petticoat Junction and Andy Griffith, and even still Lucille Ball and Ed Sullivan and Doris Day. I mean, you know, as I say in the book, Walter Cronkite would spend half an hour every night documenting all the new fissures opening in American life. And then the, the CBS primetime as the other networks would spend the next three and a half hours trying to, you know, erase them from viewers' minds. But in the early, in the late 60s and, and in this process that really took off in the early 70s, um, uh, the, the movie industry and the TV industry in particular had to reimagine themselves in order to make themselves relevant to the values and experiences of this new rising generation that was enormous in size and was um, becoming an increasing share of their audience. Um, and I think that the, all the great popular culture of the early 1970s, most of it produced in LA, I think was grappling with one overriding question above all, which was what from the ideals of the 60s, what from hopes of change from the 60s could be sustained in what was clearly stonier political soil of the 1970s. And I think that by, um, uh, and, and this really was kind of the ongoing dialogue that you, that you see in all, for example, All in the Family, I think, was basically week by week chronicling the terms of surrender uh, of the older generation to the new social mores kind of being put forward by the by the younger generation. And you, and you can look on, on, on many of these albums and on, um, uh, which we'll talk about, and on, on movies about kind of rethinking basic uh, cultural values in America, our attitudes toward authority, uh, the role of women, uh, the role of minority groups that have been marginalized, uh, attitudes about sex and marriage. And I think by the mid seventies, uh, what happened was that the, uh, the country began to be, the audience began to be somewhat exhausted 
by relitigating the arguments uh, of the of the 1960s. And, and really, the, the perfect symbol is that by 1976, Happy Days, which takes us back to kind of the placid 50s, replaces All in the Family as the number one show uh, on TV. Um, and, you know, you, you see you see kind of the rise of entertainment that's kind of less challenging. It, it can be brilliant, like Jaws and Star Wars and Close Encounters and Indiana Jones. Uh, but it's less about kind of putting an X-ray uh, on America. And, and even in music, you see kind of the bifurcation of music into disco and, and on TV, you know, not only Happy Days, but Charlie's Angels and Three's Company. And it's like a very different milieu in the late 70s. And then in music, you get kind of this bifurcation between the kind of more nihilist, you know, punk movement and then disco, which in many ways was kind of its own happy days. Right. It was it was it was it was about escape and, and fun. And so, um, uh, I, I, I you know, the, the, the moment that L.A. had in the early 70s was when the, the possibility of big change was still there. Uh, and this art reflected that. Um, and as those possibilities ebbed, I think so did LA's kind of preeminent position. But I will say that it's really critical that, you know, even as the cultural wheel turned in the, in the late 70s, we didn't go back to where we were before. I mean, after Mary Tyler Moore, we didn't go back to Donna Reed. I mean, you know, it wasn't like women were going back in the kitchen and Black people were, you know, becoming invisible uh, as they were on TV in the 60s or that we were all trusting government and, and business again. The, 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 the fight shifted, but it shifted from a new baseline that was largely created by the way that these ideas migrated from the social movements of the 60s into the pop culture of the 70s. That, um, that gives rise to a question that, that I thought about as I read all of this. And particularly, I read about how um, there was a pushback to All in the Family. There yeah. was concern that Archie Bunker was making bigotry palatable as opposed to, you know, he was being mocked for being a bigot. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that line that politicians use a lot, that you can be a thermometer or a thermostat. Mm. And a thermometer registers the temperature and a thermostat sets the temperature. Which do you think these these um, changes shows like All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore um, did they were they registering just what was out there or were they also you know leaning us in a certain direction or you know shaping how we thought? That's a great question. Um, I think they were the bridge, as I said. I think they were following. They were not introducing ideas into the bloodstream but they were mainstreaming ideas that had been considered uh, insurrectionary in many ways when they were first emerging during the 1960s. They, they, this was the consolidation of a lot of the cultural critique of American life that emerged out of the 60s. And obviously, if you look at the social movements of the 60s, they had their successes and failures. They did not usher in by any means a, a, an era of liberal political dominance of America. Richard Nixon won in 68 and he won in 72, mostly by mobilizing the voters who are the most unhappy with the way the culture was changing precisely as the changes that he was organizing against were being embedded in popular culture and thus in the way we live, never to be dislodged. And, you know, Reagan did the same thing in the 80s. And to me, like, there's a big lesson there, I mean, and a parallel to today, which is that um, you, the electorate is older and wider than the country overall. And to me, it always, you know, always has been and probably always will be. Um, and to me, that says 
at any given moment in American history, you can get a lot of political bang out of telling the voters who least like change that you're going to stop the change. I mean, Trump like offered himself as a human wall in many ways against the demographic change. Nixon offered the silent majority kind of the, the promise that he was going to make all of this cultural disruption go away. And it turns out you can win elections that way. You can win elections by promising to stop the change. What you can't do is actually stop the change, right? I mean, if you think about if you think about Nixon and Reagan and their impact on America, I mean, you know, they, they both won 49 states at yeah. one point. But in, you know, in, in 1985, as I said, we did not go back to 1955 in terms of uh, the role of uh, black and brown people in the country, the role of women, the way people looked at government, the way people thought about uh, marriage and premarital sex and all the other ways in which the, 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 the country had changed culturally, uh, changes that were that infused the great pop culture of the early 1970s, which is really the moment, I think, when they were cemented in kind of to the American psyche, we didn't go back. Um, and I think, by the way, the same is gonna be true now. I mean, like, I don't think in 10 years we're gonna be arguing about transgender rights. I mean, we may be arguing about something else uh, in the same way that you know we're not arguing about gay marriage anymore, really, you know, the, the way we were. When, I mean, George Bush in 2004 sponsored initiatives in like 11 states to ban gay marriage as part of his, a re-election strategy. Um, you, you can, as I say, you can, you can mobilize voters on a, on a short-term basis by promising them to stop change. You can't actually stop the change. And if you look at the pop culture, which because of its, you know, business model has to be more attentive to the rising generations, I think that gives you a, at moments of generational transition, like the early 70s or like today, I think the pop culture can give you a better preview of how the country is actually going to be living. Mm -hmm. in 10 years. And I think that was very much the case in the early 1970s. And I actually think it's very much the case again today. I think it, it also, it seemed to me, introduced us to people that we wouldn't have otherwise known. Um, the bigot, the single woman who's working, you know, in a news station. Um, is that still, I mean, even Modern Family, I look, I, I was yeah. thinking about the parallels between then and now. And I look at Modern Family, which has gotten a lot of credit for, you know, normalizing mm -hmm. gay couples. And, right. And, you know, and even the highest paid uh, uh, actor on there is Gloria, you know, the, the Colombian mm -hmm. star. And mm -hmm. so um, are there, do you see parallels in, you know, it seems to me we're at a, a change, a really tumultuous kind of convulsive social change now. Do you right. see parallels between that and that sort of creativity and, and broad, mind broadening exposure? to what we're going through now? Yes, I think I think absolutely. I mean, look, I, you know, the the early 70s was a collision between this massive younger generation that was bringing its set of new cultural and social attitudes, you know, into the into the kind of society and an older generation that by and large was really unnerved by the way that, by, by those changes. And as I said, I mean, all of the family condensed the generation gap into a single living room uh, every week. And, and you know, as I, as I say in the book, the 1974 Democratic gubernatorial primary between Jerry Brown and these two older uh, kind of Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey era Democrats, Joe Alioto and, and Robert Moretti, you know, might have been an extended version of this all, you know, of that kind of generation gap, all in the family kind of conflict between Archie and Mike, because they had just 
And so not only did they disagree with Jerry Brown, they had no idea what to make of him. He, he, he was like he was like an alien. I mean, they had no idea what he was talking about. They had no idea why he was connecting, uh, you know, because he was bringing into the political system. Uh, you know, he was road testing in the political system. This this core question that I that I raised before, like if I if, if the major issue of, of uh, the central issue of pop culture in the early 1970s was what of the ideals of the 60s could be translated and sustained in an enduring way in the 70s. Brown was testing that same kind of question in a political context. Like what what could I take from environmentalism, from greater inclusion, from from limits, from new way, you know, and, and, and actually win in elections. So, so, you know, the people running against him had kind of really no idea what he was talking about. Yet through the pop culture, these ideas kind of became more, the mainstream America became more explosive. So here we are now, what are we, almost 50 years later, uh, the millennials and Gen Z are the largest generation since the baby boom. They are the most diverse generation in American history. In 2024, for the first time, they will combine be people born after 1981, which are the millennials and Gen Z, will be a larger share of the eligible voters than the people born before 1964 which are the baby boomers and the silent generation, which are 80 plus percent white because we had no immigration from 24 to 65. This generation is, you know, uh, uh, roughly 44, 45% of the millennials are, are people of color and, and with Gen Z, it's up to about 48. And the people born after 2014, whatever we call them will be the first generation in American history that's majority non-white, mm -hmm. majority people of color. So, you know, I think like, there's a reason why so many companies feel like they have to side with the civil rights groups against voting restrictions, or why Joe Biden comments on how many interracial couples he sees in ads. Um, uh, it's because, you know, in the Wayne Gretzky phrase, they are skating to where the puck is going to be. I mean, they know that America in 10 years, no matter how much mileage Trump or Tucker Carlson gets out of telling people he's going to stop all this. They're not going to stop all this. The country is going to be more diverse. It's going to be more inclusive. And look at the movies that are dominating the uh, the big the big categories in the Oscars for this weekend, right? I mean, yeah. Nomadland, Minari, Judas and the Black Messiah, Ma, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night um, uh, in Miami. Um, it reflects in America that is, that has a more, the, the aperture has widened on the, on the lens. And um, I think in the same way, you know, in exactly the same way as what happened in the seventies where the culture was ahead of the politics. I think that's where we are now. And in 10 years, this is going to be a, a tolerance. You know, people don't just ex, um, accept diversity now. I think there is, it, it's seen as a, for, for much of the younger generation, not everybody, you know, but, but it's seen as a positive value and inclusion. So I think I think this is going to be a different place. Doesn't mean the left is going to win all the elections, but I do think the way we live is actually is going to be different. And and Trump and Tucker Carlson can't stop it. Well, I will, it'll be interesting to have you on in ten years to talk yes. about that because what I worried about as I read the book and I hadn't thought about it before is you know I am also kind of amazed at all of the the interracial couples and the black shows and the you know just the the mm the transgender and the binary and every, you know, all the different changes we see. But I also wonder, is that just like there was a pushback and there was a retrenchment, you know, that you write about, 
what do we, how do we know that's not going to happen now? And, and are the forces that led to that, you know, the same forces? And I know, you, as you said, demographically, it's going to be a lot harder to do. But, but there is resistance, you know, yes. there, there's there a lot of resistance. And so how, how do we know this is not just another, you know, opening of creativity that's, and the door's not going to close? Uh, I don't think we know. I don't think we know for sure. Uh, obviously, you can't you can't foresee the future. Um, but I think the lesson of the '70s and of most points in our history is that the culture wars uh, and the and and even uh, culture wars is almost too narrow a phrase. The war over defining American identity and who, what, an, you know, what America is, that never ends. I mean, it, obviously, it never ends. Um, and there are, you know, I, as you know, like in my day job. Uh, in 2012, I coined the phrase that we now have a coalition of transformation and a coalition of restoration, that the fundamental fault line in our politics is between those who mostly welcome the way the country is changing, demographically, culturally, and even economically, and those who mostly fear it. Uh, and this was four years before Trump, and I think Trump really validated uh, that theory, where he more explicitly than ever before, you know, ran on a pro uh, uh, ran on a message of make America great again, I will take us back to where we were with this old hierarchy of gender and, and race and, and religion. Um, and yeah, as I said, you may be able to win elections at any given point by promising to stop the change given the disparity between the electorate and the overall population. Um, but I don't think you can unroll the changes any more than Nixon and Reagan could unroll the changes that were, the cultural changes that were, that were unleashed or loosed in the 60s. I think we will fight we will, we will argue about new, we, we will have new points of argument, but we won't be arguing from the same place, right? We're already not arguing from the same place. Uh, we're not arguing about gay marriage anymore, right? Really, I don't think we're realistically arguing about that anymore. Now we're arguing about transgender rights. Yeah. And I think that in 10 years, we probably won't even be arguing about that. That doesn't mean there won't be something else there, you know? Uh, yeah. it, but, but, but I do think the baseline moves and, and the pop culture is often the canary in the coal mine that tells you where the baseline is moving to. That makes sense? Good point. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, mm -hmm. and you, you made some really good points. With you, There's such great stories in here, behind the scenes stuff, that sometimes that was all, I just wanted to get to that and get past mm -hmm. the politics. But your story of how Tom Hayden and uh, Jane Fonda had to kind of reimagine their movement in the wake of, the 70s because the old tactics weren't going to right. were going to work and so they didn't give up the cause they didn't you know let go of their beliefs but instead they were in Washington meeting with the Congress people yeah. you know right. as opposed to marching on the streets and yeah. so that that shows a, a sense of creativity and and understanding of what was going on was that widespread do you think yeah, I do. I, I think they were emblematic, uh, and in many ways, I, I, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book because, you know, I think it's a new perspective on the two of them and understanding them in a different way. Much like the the first chapter on Beatty and Nicholson, I think is a way of understanding the two of them in a very different way than than is commonly understood. But with with Hayden and Fonda, you know, they they really they faced in their political and activist life, exactly the same question that Jackson Brown and all in the family and, and all of this other culture was grappling with, which was what from the 60s could be preserved in the 70s? How do we take the ideals of the 60s and make them relevant in what is clearly a very different social and political moment? And, you know, 
in different ways, each of them spent the late 60s and early 70s kind of spiraling out into greater alienation uh, and, and kind of fur being further out on the ledge. And the story I tell is that 1974 really is the year they come in from the cold, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and they come in from the ledge. And, uh, you know, it's not that they abandon their ideals. Um, it's that they look for ways to try to, uh, once it was clear that fundamental revolution was not coming to the country, uh, you know, which Tom Hayden had written about and Jane Fonda had kind of talked about in this period where, you know, as she says to me very openly, she was just feeling totally at sea. I mean, she felt like she was drowning uh, until she met Hayden, who was himself kind of bruised and broken. I mean, I tell really the great story. I mean, after the trial of the Chicago 7, after the events of the movie that people are, you know, maybe maybe watching this weekend before the Oscars, he goes to Berkeley, you know, to kind of lick his wounds uh, and starts a commune and eventually gets tossed out of the commune because he is not really someone who believes in collective leadership. And he's something of a, you know, in the terminology of the day, he's also especially a male chauvinist pig. <laughs> and he literally, in this very dramatic meeting that includes figures that we both uh, that we both know, uh, uh, Robert Shear is kind of a, a player in all of this. Uh, Hayden kind of crumples into his Volkswagen and drives down to Venice back <laughs> when Venice in 1970 was, you know, uh, uh, you know, as he says, kind of, uh, you know, kind of outpatients and drug addicts. And our, there's a former LA Times colleague, Dave Smith, who wrote some incredibly beautiful stories about uh, about Venice in those years. And Hayden takes a one-room apartment under his grandfather's name and just tries to completely disappear. You know, he's just a broken person uh, at this point. Meanwhile, Fonda is kind of being, you know, whipsawed by all of these radical pressures and, and, and being someone who grew up with such privilege and was still living in such privilege, she felt this enormous pressure to be the most avant-garde on everything. And as a result, got into all sorts of, you know, uh, unfortunate situations and found herself saying things on television that were, you know, essentially indefensible. And they come together. Um, and, you know, in, in, a, in a story that I tell in the book, and initially, they're still kind of there's still centrifugal force. There's still moving. I mean, she ends up in Vietnam behind the gun. She ends up attacking the POWs when they come home. Um, but eventually they kind of get their gyroscope re resettled. And, and as you say, they, they find ways to continue working against the war and working for causes that they care about, but now within the political system. You know, and she, re she, she restarts her career in Hollywood and, and kind of has this incredibly, you know, F. Cuff as Gerald said, there are no second acts in American life. She had like a 50 year second act. <laughs> You know, yeah, uh, going. <laughs> movie, yeah. right, movie star, you know, um, uh, fitness entrepreneur and activist. Um, and I think that was emblematic. I think people who were part of the social movements of the 60s, even after the possibility of kind of fundamental reconstruction of society was clear that was not going to happen. They found ways to to express their ideals in their lives, in their communities, in their families, in their jobs. I mean, I also talked to Jackson Brown at great length about these same ideas because he grapples with them on his songs. And he's like a perfect example. I mean, he, he got more pessimistic through the mid 70s, but 
as kind of time went on, he found ways to look forward more often than look back and found causes that engaged him and artistic endeavors that engaged him. Uh, and I think that was the generational story by and large. Sorry for going on. Well, no, that was fascinating. And what, what drew Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and Crosby, Stills, Nash, what drew all of these artists to Los Angeles? They don't all seem like LA types. Yeah, yeah no, it's a really good question. So um, I asked a lot of people that, like, why LA? Why did all of this happen? And, and, and to think about it, like, um, and well, the word they gave the most was open. Like, you know, people like two or three different people talked to me about Mary Kay Place, the actress and writer, Irving Azoff, the agent, a couple other people, all had various versions of the same story that when they were ready to really begin their career, they were somewhere in the middle of the country and they were debating whether to turn their car left and go to New York or right and go to LA. Like those were like the two choices. And people would use various, or, or Danny Korchmar, who was a great guitarist and um, uh, producer later. Um, uh, uh, they, you know, they all said some version of the same thing. New York seemed closed and kind of stodgy and hierarchical. And LA was open and creative. And um, uh, there was like a, a, a kind of a, um, a cross-fertilization going on. And I think... Um, especially as this went on, there was a sense that this was where new ideas were coalescing. I was thinking after I, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of the literature about LA in the late 60s, and the classic example is Joan Didion slouching toward Bethlehem, which is taken from a poem, you know, the center cannot hold, right? I mean, and that was the image that a lot of writers had of LA in the late 60s, that it was unraveling. Like Manson was the only possible endpoint for the way people were, Helter Skelter was the only possible endpoint for the way people were writing about LA in the late 60s, that it was kind of this, you know, it was kind of this chaotic, uh, you know, it was energetic, but anarchic. And there was all of this dark energy. It was kind of like a giant doors concert or something. Um, but the period that I'm writing about in the early seventies, um, people felt like they were part of a wave that was gathering. Like, in fact, the woman who wrote Nashville, Joan Tewksbury, sent me an email after the book came out. And she said, I captured the sense that we were all part of something that was gathering momentum, mm -hmm. right? And that, you know, each, like in, in the music industry, Jackson Brown let Linda Ronstadt record Rock Me on the Water before he did. Mm -hmm. And he gave Take It Easy to the Eagles. And that's a pretty- Yeah, that's a huge. That's a big gift. Yeah. Um, and David, uh, David uh, Graham Nash talked to me about you would go to people's houses with your guitar. Right. And James L. Brooks talked to me about how they drew inspiration from all in the family. Um, and there was um, there was a sense that there was not a kind of inferiority complex about New York. New York was sliding into bankruptcy. You know, it was the era of Ford to New York dropped dead. Um, there was a sense that something new was being created here and a sense of momentum and a sense of a wave building as opposed to the kind of unraveling that so many people were writing about in the 60s, which may have been exaggerated even then. Um, and I think that was what happened. I mean, there was, there was an openness, there was a cross-fertilization uh, and there was a sense there was a, as a, that new voices could be heard. Now there were limits on that. Not a lot of black people, not a lot of brown people, you know, got their voice heard. Not a lot of women got their, their voice heard, at least at the 
at the, the level of controlling things, but there was an openness compared to, I think, other periods and especially compared to New York in that period. It sounds like they were more about um, community and collaboration than, than competition or, or business, like the creative side of music where you wanna be around yeah. people that are like you and, and not so monetary or mercenary maybe. You, you should look at the liner notes on uh, Linda Ronstadt. You know, Linda Ronstadt, her breakthrough album is Heart Like a Wheel in 1974. And she had a really rough time. I don't think you get a full feeling for this in the otherwise excellent documentary about her. They kind of present her life as kind of like a steady ascent. But she had really like five really rough years where she was largely spinning her wheels. And, and, and people were kind of wondering why someone who was so talented, so beautiful, so everything um, was not making it. And it was partly because she had this vision or sound in her head of, of what she was trying to do to, to kind of rethink, you know, kind of create a new blend of country and rock and folk. Um, and the only people who could say yes were white men. And there was a lot of kind of patting her on the head, you know, don't you worry your pretty little head about it. Um, and so it really wasn't until 1974 when she connects with a guy named Peter Asher, who was the producer for James Taylor uh, earlier, uh, and of course becomes her great producer and manager and is still heard on the Beatles channel um, uh, doing his, <laughs> his show uh, because he was the head of Apple Records and his sister dated Paul McCartney. Um, but if you look at that album, and you look at the list of people who are on it, it's like everybody, it's, it's, it's like the entire community, right? So there was this sense of like, it, it, it took a village, right? I, I, didn't, I should have said it that way in the book. I mean, it almost like it took a village to create the album that allowed her to finally fulfill her potential. And I did say that it was, it was a triumph, not only for her, but for the entire generation of musicians who were here, who were all put, you know, Glenn Fry played on it and Don Henley played on it. And, uh, you know, um, I think Bonnie Raitt and Maria Muldauer and just this, just this uh, JD Souther, uh, just, just this kind of all-star team, Andrew Gold. Um, uh, because there was this sense that, um, you weren't, you, you, someone else making it didn't make it less likely that you were going to make it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm not sure if Hollywood ever got quite that collaborative, but I do think they did have a shared belief that they were each making it easier for the other to try new things and to do, I mean, Warren Beatty and Robert Town, both in different ways were talking to me about how much fun it was in the early 70s, because, you know, in the 60s, your palette was so constricted, what you could make a movie about, the language you could use, the stories you could tell. Um, uh, and then in the 70s, that early 70s, especially that radically expanded. Now, to repeat myself, the great blind spot in all of this was exclusion. I mean, the people who got to control the, even if we were telling more stories of the experience of women or, or people of color, it was still mostly white men who were controlling those, the telling of those stories. But the, but the, 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 the kind of the panorama of the stories we told did widen somewhat. Uh, and it really is kind of the first crack in the door that, you know, the fights that continue 50 years later. Yeah. And yeah, that's still that's still going on to who gets to tell it and whose mm -hmm. perspective is it? Um, right. I was fascinated by this seems so um, incongruous The there was a I think it was a producer, Schneider, who was, Schneider. Very, uh, 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 who was very close to Huey Newton. Yes. And actually helped him to escape the country. Yes. After. How does that happen? And how does that not translate to 
okay, we're going to have some black shows. Right, know? right. So Bert Schneider, Bert Schneider is a fi figure who's almost completely forgotten today, but he was a comet in the late 60s and early 70s. Him and Bob Rafelson um, uh, were two guys. Bob Rafelson was a director. Bert Schneider was basically a money guy. His father was the head of Columbia Pictures. Um, and they created the Monkees, which oh, were kind of the, the synthesized, the monkeys. synthesized monkeys. Beatles. Uh, <laughs> and they created the Monkees. And then they wrote a movie uh, called Head with this buddy of theirs who was an, who was an actor who had spent so many years knocking around on B-movies without success that he was about ready to hang it up and become a screenwriter. And he was a guy named Jack Nicholson. Oh, wow. Right. The wow. movie Head, which is this horrible, weird deconstruction of the monkeys, uh, but it crosses them into the bridge into, into movies. And in 1969, they make a movie called Easy Rider, which mm -hmm. you may have heard of. Remember that, and yeah. There is the view that they put Nicholson in the movie uh, to uh, keep an eye on Dennis Hopper, who was the director. And, you know, because <clears throat> Nicholson was part of their inner circle. So Bert Schneider, um, and we'll come back to Nicholson maybe in a minute, but Bert Schneider was started off as this kind of money guy, you know, who was a brilliant battler, uh, created BBS. They made The Last Picture Show. They, they, they made uh, Five Easy Pieces. They made Easy Rider. In 1974, they made Hearts and Minds, really the first, maybe the only great documentary on Vietnam that Hollywood ever produced, which won Best, uh, best Documentary in, in 1975. Um, but Schneider was kind of the Icarus of LA. I mean, he took everything in this era to the extreme. Uh, you know, he, when he came out here, he had this beautiful wife, beautiful family. Um, you know, he, he would have Friday night, you know, uh, gin rummy, you know, games. And, <laughs> but, but he became a sexual adventurer, a drug adventurer, a radical politics adventurer, uh, you know, went you know, as you say, became very close to the to Huey Newton, actually, in this kind of cockamamie story that I tell in 1974, which would be amusing if it did not involve murder, um, kind of spirited Huey Newton out of the country and ultimately to Cuba in, in a series of misadventures. Um, but became but, you know, the, the drugs kind of took over and he became more paranoid and more isolated until really Nicholson was the only one who could who could who could deal with him in, in the story that I tell. Um, but even Bert Schneider, who was, you know, funded uh, Bob, it was critical to the 1973 uh, uh, Bobby Seale um, uh, mayoral race in, in Oakland. He never considered working. With, it just never came up working with a black filmmaker. I talked to Tom Pollock, who recently um, uh, passed away, who was the uh, later in the 80s, the, the head of Universal Pictures. But in the 70s, he was the lawyer for most of kind of the movie brat generation, Lucas, George Lucas was his most famous client, all the, all the great young talent emerging from USC. And he was saying how it like never even occurred to him that he didn't have any, uh, you know, people of color as clients. Like it just, it was, it just, you know, it just was. And, and, and it, 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 the exclusion was so complete that it wasn't even remarked upon. And even when the, you know, you, you did have this, Two things were happening. One, you started to get more black characters on TV. That did happen. Um, the EEOC did a study. They went from, I think, uh, you know, you got to about one in eight 
characters on it. One in eight shows had a black character in 1974, I think, which was double what it was in 1965. And you did get good times. You did get the Jeffersons. Um, you you had even Shaft for a season um, uh, as, a, as a show. But again, you know, there was endemic conflict, particularly on good times, because Norman Lear kept the control of those shows and kind of older white guys. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of frustration. The, 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 the big exception was this strange interlude of the black exploitation movies in the early 70s. I remember. Yeah. And Superfly and all the Pam Grimm. There were 200 of them made. And in some cases, they did provide opportunities for black directors, to some extent screenwriters, certainly black, you know, uh, craftspeople like, you know, um, but by and large, most of them were also directed and written and certainly higher up the chain, controlled by, by, by white uh, executives. And these movies were... Um, um, you know, and as, as, as you may recall, enormously controversial in the black community. Yeah. Some people thought they were empowering and a yeah. lot of people thought they were demeaning and they would literally be picketed by civil rights groups uh, yeah. at times. But didn't it matter most whether they got people in the theaters? Yes, That's probably. Yeah. 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 And, they, and they did. And I think what killed them was the recognition by the studios that in the new era of blockbusters of Jaws and Star Wars and, and Close Encounters, they did, black people were just as likely as white people to go to those movies. So they didn't yeah. need, they yeah. didn't need this kind of separate channel. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Um, I can remember that. I can remember feeling happy, proud to see people on the screen, but then when I'd see the movies, I would cringe, you know, yes. because they just, it, it wasn't a world that I recognized that well, so many Black people recognized. I, I, I remember, like, I, I had this line in the book, I mean, the Pam Greer movies are really interesting, because, you know, like, Coffee, um, yeah. uh, say, um, because she, as a Black woman, gets to take revenge on white people in a way that is virtually unprecedented in cinema <laughs> yeah. at that point. But she also spends half the movie with her top off. Yeah, it was, it was like softcore porn, really. Right. It's like, but it's like, so it's like, which one is it? You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a breakthrough in one way, but it's, it's the worst kind of, you know, reversion and stereotype in the other. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think people were so ambivalent about it. Well, I'm going to go to some questions now because, yeah. um, some people are kind of touching on what you're raising. One question we have is, um, does provocative cultural expression always inevitably get watered down and defanged? And is there an international equivalent to LA in the early, early 70s? That, that was the same person asking the, both of those questions. So, so I do think, I mean, look, I, I, I people are going to, some people may go, uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to compare the, the level of talent that was assembled in LA in the early 1970s across all of these industries with what we saw in the modern art and theater world in New York in the early 1950s or what we saw in the literary world in Paris in the 1920s. I, I think that it is a comparable moment uh, of just a constellation of talent um, coming together. The answer to the second question is yes, because that's ultimately what it takes to reach the mass audience, right? So like there are people who thought that Norman Lear, for example, in All in the Family, uh, you know, took the edge off the real, as you were saying before, the real conflicts. Um, and certainly Mary Tyler Moore was criticized by feminists for being too deferential still, even though 
Mary Richards, her character was vastly more independent and assertive than Laura Petrie had been. Oh, yes. Um, but to some extent, the price of reaching the mass audience, I suppose, is an inevitable dilution. But I, you know, as I was saying before, like it's still the baseline moved of American cultural yeah. attitudes on all of these questions that we're talking about. And I believe a big reason why it moved, not the only, but a central reason why it moved is because they were embedded in pop culture that reached the big audience. Um, Linda Bloodworth Thomason, who went on to you know, create Designing Women in the 80s, was a young writer in those, in those years, one of the few women who were, who were breaking into um, uh, you know, sitcom writing. And she told me of a conversation she had with Larry Gelbart, who was the uh, genius uh, who with Gene Reynolds kind of shepherded MASH and he wrote uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum in the, in the 50s and was, I mean, he was, he was a prodigy. He was writing for Bob Hope when he was still in high school, which is hard to imagine in the, mm -hmm. in the 1940s. But Larry Gelbart, you know, Linda Blubber Thomason, you know, kind of wanted to be a kind of art house, I think, uh, you know, movie director and, and Linda, a uh, writer. And, and Larry Gelbart said to her, if you want to change America, if you want to change society, you got to get in the box, meaning the TV. Mm. And I suppose in answer to the question, you could take in the box in two ways. Yes, you have to operate within the context of the box, right? You can't be as out there. But once you're in the box, you can reach a lot of people and change attitudes. And now so much is in the box because of cable. Yeah. Um, and I and it, it made me think. I thought about you had a story in the book about Linda Blair. She was in The Exorcist, that went well. Then she was in another movie that was so. Um, it had a she was a More teenage innocent. girl who, who was gang raped, and that that led to us putting restrictions on when you could show violence. Yes. And and I think now about there's the movie Them, which is mm -hmm. the the black family. I think it's Amazon, but yeah. it's um and it has these very gruesome scenes of violence that. And it's, you know, it's made by black people, but that's, you know, also getting a lot of pushback because, yep. you know, how far, at what point are you just like taking advantage of something to titillate mm -hmm. and at what point are you, you know, really showing it? So it is a, it, it's an ongoing thing, which leads to a question. One of someone asked, and both of these are really good questions. The first one is how much can we trace our contemporary political attitudes to this moment in, nine, in the seventies? And the second one is, what was the hardest thing that you had to leave out of your book? Mm. Uh, so the first question is absolutely like, you know, I've been a political reporter, as you said, for 40 years. The biggest change in our politics uh, over my lifetime and, and it is we have gone from a political alignment in which the parties were separated mostly by class to one in which they are separated mostly by cultural attitudes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at the decades around World War II, both before and after, you could draw a line somewhere in the income ladder. Most people above it reliably voted Republican. Most people below it reliably voted Democratic. That's no longer true. As I said, the big dividing line is, is whether you are okay with or resistant to all of the ways the country is changing. Uh, and the big bang for that, when that, and that's been a process that's really unfolded, it's taken 50 years to, to fully uh, develop. But the big bang for it are the cultural changes of the 60s. That's when you start to see, you know, Southern white evangelicals who had been Democrats for a hundred years voting Republican uh, for the first time around race 
and then later abortion and things like that. And same thing with with um, uh, conservative Catholics in the in the Midwest who would have felt unwelcome in a WASPy Republican Party. Uh, and conversely, you know, the kind of the white collar America that had been always Republican started to become more Democrat. And the the period that I write about is is the beginning of that. It is the very is the very dawn of that shift in the axis because all of the changes the cultural changes in America that, that are embodied in uh, the pop culture of the early 70s is what Nixon is starting to push back again with, with his silent majority. And then Reagan takes it further. W takes it in a different direction. And then Trump goes all out, making it overtly, explicitly racial. So that was, um, uh, yes, we well, are. And it, and it seems too, back then, at least we were all watching the same shows. Yes. Now, now it's a different table, There was no nothing else. And NBC had this on at this time. That's what you watch. Right. And now it seems like when you talk about that cultural shift and the cultural divide, we can choose to watch only what's, you know, supports what we already oh. think. Yep. So it, it seems hard to think there's going to be some kind of a, you know, reconciliation or a moment like you yes. wrote about in 70. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I think, you know, I haven't looked at this lately, but like the last time I did, it's true not only in terms of Fox versus MSNBC and CNN, it's true even on the entertainment stuff. Yeah, like the, yeah, the entertainment in red and blue America. Uh, I mean, there is some overlap, but by and large, there is a big difference in what people are consuming. So the question is, what was the toughest to leave out? Um, I had to cut back on some. I had to cut back on some secondary characters. There was, uh, I think, the, the main the main editing note was to kind of stick with the, your 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 main horses. So um, I think I had a cut back on, on some of the figures that I might've written a little more about who weren't absolutely central to the, to the story, like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, uh, Joni Mitchell, <clears throat> the Godfather movies. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I ended up <clears throat> zeroing in on Beatty Nicholson in town, plus Altman and Spielberg in movies the big three of Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, and All in the Family, and then mostly Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles in, uh, in music, as well as the, the, the one chapter that focuses on the, the largely excluded voices um, uh, of, of women and, and people of color. I think my biggest regret uh, is that, you know, I've described writing a book as like, um, uh, it's like you open a door into a room that is completely dark, and you spend like three months illuminating the room inch by inch by inch. And then like when you have the room fully illuminated, you see that there's like an, at the end of it, there's another door that you <laughs> open and there's another completely dark room. And I didn't realize how potentially important Bill Withers was to my story until too late. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, and, and he, he passed, I, 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 I would have liked to have talked to him. Uh, that, that's something I wish, uh, you know, I had, you know, when you're writing a book like this, you're always struggling between the, the need to talk to people who are older to make sure you can talk to them uh, versus um, uh, knowing enough to have a productive conversation with them. Yeah. And, and so I, I kind of missed out on him. And I think he would have been great to talk to about this era. Well, we have about four minutes left. Okay. And I just want to ask this because it's I think it's really critical. What effect did this new culture in L.A. have on local politics? We have yeah. a about that. 
Well, you know, L.A. had been a very segregated city uh, enforced with an iron fist by by William Parker. Um, and Sam Yorty, who had first got elected mayor in 61, is kind of a gadfly. I think he ran against like, you know, that you wouldn't have to separate your trash on trash day. Um, he gravitated to the right, particularly after Watts in 1965 and unequivoc unequivocally sided with Parker uh, and became more of a Frank Rizzo type overt race baiter in 1969 when he ran against Tom Bradley. Tom Bradley was uh, one of the first uh, I think there were three elected in the same year, African-Americans elected the city council. He was the only black uh, police officer who rose to the rank of lieutenant during the entire Parker era. And in April 1969, he kind of stunned everybody by rushing out to a lead ahead of Yorty in the uh, in the mayoral race. Um, and then Yorty incredibly beat him by running a, you know, un unabashedly racist campaign saying that basically Bradley was going to turn the city over to the Black Panthers and half of the cops would quit if he won. Bradley never stopped running though. And you can see Yorty won the battle and lost the war. He became an embarrassment to the city leaders who wanted LA to become a much more global and cosmopolitan city than it was at the time. And one of the great things about revisiting this era is talking to people like Angelica Houston about what a small town LA seemed at that point. You know, the LA Times, as you know, was just kind of emerging from its own kind of cocoon uh, in, in kind of the, you know, uh, Southern California right-wing politics. And, you know, um, she's like, she's like, you could even get fresh mozzarella in LA in 1973. Um, um, so, uh, you know, Bradley ran, never stopped running. And then in 1973, Bradley beats Yorty, you know, at the same moment that these changes are happening. And obviously it, that was not the deliverance moment. Uh, you know, he's still battling with Daryl Gates later for, for years and years. Uh, and, 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 and it was always, you know, as, as, as uh, upright a figure as he was, may have been considered too cautious on um, confronting the police department, but LA itself was beginning to change. And, um, you know, there was a sense of coming out of this past and emerging as kind of a global city um, that, uh, you know, had to be more cosmopolitan, that had to be more inclusive. Um, uh, again, it wasn't like turning a switch. I mean, this is a fight that, you know, you, you know, certainly no one would argue is over today. Um, but it is the beginning, it is a turning point, you know, it is a turning point in culture, it's a turning point in local politics. Uh, and it is with the election of Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown is really the first figure who gets elected to something big, bringing some of these ideas into the political system, which also happens in 1974. So I think all of these things, uh, uh, you know, kind of coalesce to create what truly was kind of a magic hour year for LA and one that I, I'm just, whatever happens with the book, I'm glad that I have given it, I feel like I have given it its due. That, 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 the, that you know, people have written verticals on this story, but the full breadth of what LA was accomplishing in those years and all of the creativity that was flowing back and forth, I was just really proud to be able to try to put it down. Well, and I hope you will do something similar about 2020 or 2021, <laughs> because there's a lot to say there too. Um, thank you so much for being with us. We have to go now, um, but this was a great conversation and I wanna thank Zocalo Public Square for sponsoring it. Um, and thank you all for the excellent questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. Um, and I hope Ron's gonna be doing some more events. 
You can visit Zocalo's website tomorrow to see a, a summary of the conversation, where you can also find this and all our other discussions on our website, on Zocalo's website and podcast and any other major podcast platform. So thank you for joining us today. And um, I look forward to all of you reading the book and learning a lot. And now I can tell you, I don't think about music, TV, movies, politics as separate things anymore. Now it's, all kinds of ideas are in my head. So thank you for that. Thank you, and Sandy. Good night to all of you. <laughs>